Revelation chapters 15 and 16, NIV. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image, and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God, and sang the song of God's servant Moses, and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty! Just and true are your ways, King of the nations! Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and I saw in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen, and wore golden sashes round their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify Him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way 
for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed, so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gather the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about forty kilograms, fell on people, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. That is a serious and rather scary passage, isn't it? Uh, We really don't like to think about judgment, uh, to talk about judgment. Uh, We we don't like to think that maybe we deserve judgment. And yet the other side of that is that we really don't like injustice, do we? We really don't like injustice. You know, there was a story in the news this week of a pedestrian who had crashed with a cyclist. I don't know if you saw that uh, bit of news. Uh, She was walking out into the street looking at her phone and a cyclist went into her. And the judge said that actually both her and the cyclist were at fault and yet it was the cyclist who had to pay her compensation and somewhere in the region of £25,000 of court fees. And when I read that, I thought, that doesn't sound fair. That doesn't sound like a just judgment. And lots of other people felt like that as well. And actually, they crowdsourced the money and uh, raised the money to pay the fines and the court costs. And the guy actually then donated a whole load of money to charity. We really don't like it when justice is not done. You know, last weekend, we celebrated the Windrush generation. And it was great to celebrate their contribution uh, to our nation and to many of our institutions. But in some ways, it kind of rang a bit hollow because there's people of that generation who are still waiting for compensation because they've been detained or deported or their status has been affected We want there to be justice, don't we? And in these chapters, we see that God will bring justice 
on the earth. Everything that is evil and wrong and unfair and comes out of unbelief and rebellion of God will be judged. Now that should encourage us, but actually it can make us feel a bit fearful, maybe for our own uh, kind of safety. It can also maybe make us feel a bit like, oh, well, they deserve it anyway, uh, and be a bit kind of critical of others. Or it could make us complacent because we think, well, I'm saved, I'm fine, I I don't need to, you know, I'll just skim over that passage and, and flick on to the next chapter. But I think these words are spoken to us to be both an encouragement and a challenge. And as I go through the passage, I'd love you to look at the verses. I'm going to try and pick out the verses where someone speaks. It's either an angel or God or the people of God, because those kind of provide a marker of where God is going in this chapter. So the first thing we see in verse 3 is the song of Moses and of the Lamb. And these two songs are intertwined in this passage. There's the song of deliverance that Moses sang after the people came out of Egypt. And then there's the song of the martyrs, those that have been persecuted, who are singing before the throne of God. And this is an important reminder to us in this chapter that judgment is in the context of deliverance, that God's purpose has always been to deliver his people. And certainly when the original readers would have read this passage and seen the song of Moses, they would have immediately brought back into their memory uh, the the story of the Exodus. Remember the story, uh, people of Israel are in Egypt, they're crying out to God to release them, and God sends Moses, he goes to Pharaoh, you know, says, let my people go that they might worship me, and Pharaoh says, no. And so 10 plagues come on Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. And between each plague, there's an opportunity for, the, for Pharaoh to repent and say, oh, sorry, yeah, of course you can go, of course you can be free, off you go. But he doesn't repent. And so the, the plagues come, 10 of them, and they get worse and worse, and they culminate in the death of the firstborn in every family. And the way the people of God were protected from that plague was to kill a lamb and to paint the blood over the doorpost of their homes so that as this destruction passed through the land, the blood was seen and they were saved. So they were released. They went onto the Red Sea, through the Red Sea, Pharaoh and his armies come after them. They are drowned. They are judged. And the people of God rejoice. On the other side, they sing with Moses and Miriam the song of a delivered people. It's good for us to remember when we're in trouble and facing uh, challenges that God is a God of deliverance. So in this chapter... We have seven bowls that pour out seven plagues, but then we also have three evil spirits that come and also bring plagues. So we have 10 plagues in total that mirror the 10 plagues of Exodus. And we see 
judgment on every aspect of earth with these seven bowls. Judgment on the land, the sky, the sun, the rivers, the sea, and the final three affect all of humanity with darkness, death, and destruction through earthquakes and wars. Horrible, a terrible scene. They come from the hand of seven angels who come from the very presence of God, from the temple. And that's important because it reminds us that judgment is an expression of God's holiness. Bowls or cups are often linked to judgment in the Bible. So in Psalm 75, we get this reading. It is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Now, I know it sounds like he's talking about, you know, that Christmas mulled wine that comes out once a year, or maybe one of those posh cocktails that has like a foam on the top. But no, he's actually talking about something so horrible that no one would want to drink it. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross. He prays this, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew on the cross that he would take the punishment that we deserved. He would be counted guilty so that we could be acquitted. He drank the cup of wrath that we deserved. You know, one of the things when you talk about judgment is that you actually realize sometimes in our culture we lack judgment. I mean, one of the tragic things of knife crime And actually, if you go back to, you know, the Stephen Lawrence case, is that often people get away with it. The people who've done terrible things uh, disappear. They're covered for. They're lied over. Uh, There's not enough evidence. And so that leaves families who've been affected by crime uh, crying out for justice. And... We see that God's justice and judgment comes in response to those cries. He came in response to the cries of the, the, the people of God in Egypt. And in Revelation 6 verse 10, those who've been persecuted are crying out to God. And they say this, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth? And sometimes we cry that, don't we? How long, Lord, before you sort out the evil and the horrible things that we see on our news? And that's the context that God brings judgment to. Over the years, centuries, God has given people opportunities, warnings to repent. But ultimately, he is holy and he will come in judgment. But we are blessed to be in a season where he is being patient with the earth, patient with humanity. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, 
but everyone to come to repentance. That's the mercy of God, not wanting to judge the earth. You know, sometimes people think that judgment is just kind of in the Old Testament or in weird books like Revelation. But actually, Jesus himself spoke about judgment on many occasions. And in one of his parables in, Luke, in Matthew 13, he sp- speaks about our earth and the kind of tension we live in currently. And it's about a field where there was wheat planted and then an enemy came and planted weeds. And the two grow together. And Jesus says that there will be a day when the wheat will be gathered in safely and the weeds will be pulled up and burnt. Judgment is inevitable. It will come. But in the season we live, sometimes we we don't know whether the bad things we experience or we see on the news are expression of judgment or they're just part of the brokenness and fallenness of our world. And people in Jesus' time had the same questions when they saw bad things happen. And in fact, in Luke 13, some people came to Jesus and there'd been a tower that had fallen on some people, an accident, and 18 people had died. And they came to Jesus and kind of said, is this judgment? Did they deserve to die? And Jesus isn't drawn. He he basically doesn't give an answer, but it says instead, are you ready to repent? It's like Jesus is saying, it's not for us to judge. It's not for us to make that decision. The question comes to us, are we ready? Are we humble? Are we ready to repent? When bad things happen, do we respond with humility and with mercy? And I think that's a warning to us to not judge others or say they deserve it, but to be quick to repent ourselves and actually say, you know, there but for the grace of God, go I. Let's leave judgment to God. If we go to uh, chapter 16, verse 5, we, we get this voice that booms out from an angel in charge. It's great to know that there are angels in charge behind the scenes in our world. And, and this voice booms out, a holy one, you who are and who were, true and just are your, are your judgments. And it's as if uh, God knows that as we look at the terrible pictures of judgment, sores and uh, death and rivers of blood, we need that encouragement to remember who God is, that he is true and just. We, we were fortunate enough to live in the States for about seven years, and we went to a church uh, where the senior pastor preached every single week unless he was on holiday. I mean, you're fortunate. You get all kinds of variety, don't you, here at King's. And it didn't matter what passage he started with. Over the years, we, we knew where he would end up. And there were always two things that we knew that he would say. I don't know if you find that with some of us preachers here at King's. The first thing he would say would be about God's grace. 
that, ha- that we deserve judgment, that we are more bre- messed up and broken and sinful than we like to admit. And yet God, in his love and mercy, longs to forgive us and welcome us home. And his grace is ever towards that. Wonderful, encouraging message. But the second thing he always weaved into his preach was that God is sovereign. God is in control. That nothing happens to us or in this world that has escaped his notice or even his permission. That's harder to take on board because that means in some way God is allowing suffering in our world. And that's a hard thing for us to kind of compute, particularly if we're going through a tough time ourselves. But, you know, a few years ago, when my husband was seriously ill, that truth was what we held on to. Yes, we prayed for healing. Yes, we accepted God's love and grace. For fundamentally, we came to the point where we said, whatever happens, we're going to believe that God is just and true and that we can trust him. And that he has a plan that he's working out for our deliverance, even if it doesn't look like it's happening right now. God has a plan for deliverance. And whether we're waiting and waiting and waiting for that to happen or not, we can have hope and faith in him, just and true. How do I know that God is just and true? I look at the life of Jesus. When God sent Jesus to earth, he was perfect. He was holy and good. He stepped towards people with grace. When he met people who were sinful, he he gave grace to them and truth as well. He lifted people up. He wept over the coming judgment of Jerusalem. He reached out and healed people. He was love and goodness personified. And yet God allowed bad things to happen to him. He was betrayed. He went to a false trial. He was tortured. And on the cross as he died, he drank the cup of wrath, the punishment that I deserved, he took it on himself. And so as he died, he was able to say, it's finished. I've done it for you. I've taken your punishment. And he was laid in the tomb, but hallelujah, he was raised from the dead. And his death and resurrection means that I and you, we have the opportunity to be forgiven and cleansed and transformed. God's love and purpose was perfectly fulfilled in those ugly, horrible moments on the cross when the devil thought that he was going to be victorious, but actually God was working out his plan of deliverance. But the people through the, on the earth, through the centuries in our own day and days to come, have ignored that message And have refused to believe in Jesus. And so we see in verses 9 and 11 that the people refuse to repent. And so complete judgment becomes inevitable. 
It culminates in war and natural disasters. The bowls are poured out and a voice comes from the throne. It is done. It is finished. That might seem harsh to us, but actually in our own stories uh, that we watch on TV and movies and books, it's not enough for the goody to kind of come out on top. We have to see the baddie judged, or there's no justice in the story. You know, so think of Toy Story 3, and I'm looking forward to Toy Story 4. Uh, you know, the, the toys are imprisoned in a nursery ruled by an evil teddy bear. And it's not enough for them to escape the nursery. That teddy bear needs to face judgment and end up on the front of a bin lorry for the rest of his life. Or think of Lion King. It's not enough for Simba to come back to Pride Rock and take his rightful place as the king. No, the evil Uncle Scar must be judged and taken off by the hyenas. We have to see judgment done. That's the cry of our hearts, if we're honest. And verse 14 says that there's a culmination of this, uh, this judgment of a battle between the kings of the earth and our king. You know, people over the years have tried to identify this battle, Armageddon. Was it the First World War, or the Second World War, or the Gulf War? But actually, Jesus warns us not to waste our energy on trying to work that out. It says in Matthew 24, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. As a side note, the battle isn't described in Revelation. But if you skip over to chapter 19, verse 11, you'll see Jesus riding in on a horse as if from a battle. And emblazoned on him are the words, King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's all we need to know. He wins the battle. He wins. That is our hope. But there's also a challenge for us. If you look at verse 15, a voice, and I think it's the voice of Jesus, comes and says, stay awake. I will come like a thief in the night. Stay awake. Jesus himself had said those words when he was on earth, and he'd, he'd told parables about staying alert, staying awake, being ready, being filled with the Spirit. And Paul also speaks about being ready in his letter to the Thessalonians. So I just want to read these verses from 1 Thessalonians 5. He says this. Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another 
and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing in the Revelation series. What a wonderful verse. God didn't appoint us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus to receive wrath that we see in Revelation 16, but we are destined to receive salvation. What a wonderful word to encourage us and to challenge us. And this is what is so relevant about this passage, that we are called to stay awake. There's a response demanded from us in response to Revelation 16. And I think there are three ways that we can encourage each other. We can stay awake through worship, witness, and waiting. You know, worship is a great antidote to fear. So if these words about judgment make you feel fearful, then worship is, is a great way. Worship to declare who God is and what he's done for us, that he's delivered us in the past. He will deliver us in the future. Eugene Peterson, who translated the Message Bible, said, worship reorientates us to what God is doing. It lifts our eyes to see the one who is just and true and enables us to persevere. When William and I went through that hard time, we, we turned up the volume of worship in our life. I mean, I literally did it in the car. I would have good music pumping out. And so sometimes that was a surprise for him when he got in the car and turned the engine on and, you know, it was coming at him. And, and whatever type of music you like, gospel or classical or old hymns, get worship in your heart and soul. The writer to the Hebrews said, don't neglect meeting together. Let's meet together and worship. The writer to Ephesians says, come to worship with a song in your heart, a psalm. We are people of worship. Worship helps us uh, cope with what we face in life and reminds us of God's deliverance. The second thing is we are called to witness. We're called to stay awake. This isn't a game or a fiction or a fantasy. The times are urgent. We need to be on the front foot showing grace and mercy to people around us, being willing to share our story of how God has delivered us so that other people might find themselves drawn to Jesus. We don't want anybody not to have the chance to come to faith in Jesus. So let's stay awake and make the most of every opportunity. You know, if you're here today and you're not yet a believer, you are really welcome with us. I hope that you are enjoying the challenge of revelation. But I, I have to say to you, Maybe for you, it's time to consider the claims of Jesus, to ask questions about who he is and what this salvation is that we keep talking about. Even today, you could decide to put your trust and faith in Jesus. He will welcome you. He will forgive you. Whatever your past, he is here to offer grace to you today. He loves you. Thirdly, we wait in faith. When you hear about judgment or bad things happening, we can be fearful. We can get worried about our own kind of safety spiritually. But I want to remind you uh, that throughout the Bible, and here's a verse from Acts 2, it says this, 
Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's that simple. If you have repented and put your faith in Jesus, you will be saved. If you've, if you've done that, it's as if you've painted over your doorpost the blood of the Passover lamb. You know, there are some old hymns that talk about being covered by the blood of the lamb. And it's graphic imagery. But what it means is you're saved from wrath. You're saved from judgment. You can know an assurance of salvation, that you are part of the people of God, that one day you'll be worshiping in heaven with all the people from every tribe and tongue and nation. You'll be part of the people of God, part of his family because of the blood of the Lamb. So let's worship, let's witness, let's wait in faith, and God will be with us. Let me just pray. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you for your salvation. We thank you that Jesus died for us, that we might experience forgiveness and grace. We thank you, Lord God, that you want us to know an assurance that we are safe, that we are part of your people, uh, that we don't come under wrath in this same way. Oh God, uh, may your Holy Spirit like, imprint that on our hearts that we belong to you. And Lord God, if there's anybody here who is doubting that, is not sure if they're saved, has yet to put their faith in you, we pray, Lord God, that you will reveal your grace and love to them and you will draw them to yourself, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.